From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, Apple and Zopa step into buy now, pay later. There's been some major announcements in Money 2020 in Amsterdam this week. And fintech developers could be blasting into space. All this and more on today's show. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Let's face it, cards were not designed for online. Payments can take days to settle, hurting customer loyalty, while high fraud, clunky checkouts and expensive fees means millions in missed revenue. At TrueLayer, we've made instant payments available for businesses across Europe and the UK, so you can cut costs, fight fraud and get money moving faster. To learn more, visit truelayer.com forward slash payments. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series, and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome to episode 636 of Fintech Insider. My name is Guerra, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry, who is our strategy director for business design and growth. Hi, Nicole. How you doing? I'm doing well, Guerra. Thank you. Thank you for having me back on. How's the, how's the training for the Tour de France coming? <laughs> um, we are moving into um, tapering zone now. So uh, yes, the legs are not spinning quite as much, which is uh, excellent news. Nice. For context, uh, listeners, Nicole is riding all stages of the Tour de France very soon, which is, I'm, I get nauseous just thinking about that. But uh, yeah, that's (laughs) awesome. As always, we are joined by some very special guests making a fintech insider debut. We've got Lena Hackler, the CEO and founder of Bright Payments. Welcome to the show, Lena. Can you give our audience an introduction to you and Bright Payments, please? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Um, My name is Lena. I'm a fintech founder based in Stockholm, Sweden, where my business, Bright Payments, offers instant payments all across Europe. So essentially what we do is we allow consumers to use their bank account when making a payment online in all kinds of different purchase situations. And we also allow merchants to pay their customers instantly. So we process funds both ways, mostly leveraging open banking rails. And we are based in Stockholm, but have offices all across Europe. So we have our development office in Spain and a number of different um, offices in countries such as Germany, for example, soon opening in the Baltics. Um, And myself, I've been in the fintech space for the past 12 years, actually spent seven years in a company called Klarna that I think many of the listeners today will probably know. Initially started out building Klarna's B2B marketing department and then went to another buy now later provider, also based in Stockholm in Sweden. And uh, so I'm very much looking forward to the BNPL segment of the show today because that's very much my home turf. So very curious as to what everybody thinks about the most recent deals in that space. That's awesome. Thank you. And another FinTech Insider debut from Tim Waterman, the Chief Commercial Officer over at Zopa. Welcome to the show, Tim. We'll get into your news a little bit later in the show, but can you give us a brief explainer on who Zopa is uh, for those who are not familiar? Hi, Guara. It's uh, great to be here today. I've been a long-time listener, so a real pleasure to be on the show. Uh, Zopa Bank was launched two years ago uh, and had backing from early investors of Slack, Uber, and Alibaba. Before launching the bank, you may know Zopa as the world's first peer-to-peer business, and we have been operating that business for over 17 years in the UK. Our mission is to be the best place for money for UK consumers. 
And we plan to do that by providing lending and savings products which are clear, fair and transparent about many of the secondary terms associated with traditional banks. And since launching the bank, we've had a great time. We became profitable within 21 months, becoming one of the fastest uh, near banks to do that globally. We've built a balance sheet of more than one and a half billion and issued more than a quarter of a million credit cards. And recently we've launched uh, very cutting edge um, hybrid savings accounts, which pay really attractive rates to consumers. But this is just the start and we have huge ambition for the future. Exciting. Awesome. And with that, let's get into the news. We picked this up from The Verge. Apple Pay Later is the company's take on buy now, pay later services. Apple is launching a feature for Apple Pay to let U.S. customers pay for purchases in four installments over time without interest called Apple Pay Later. It's Apple's take on buy now, pay later built right into Apple Pay and coming with iOS 16. Consumers will be able to pay for installments over six weeks, paying the first payment up front and the other three every two weeks. Payments are managed in the in-wallet app and can be paid in advance as well. Apple has been rumored to be working on its own Buy Now Pay Later service for some time now. And the announcement is seen as an extension of the company's strategy to encourage people to buy things using Apple Pay. The new product was announced at the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, alongside order tracking, editable text, and a revamped lock screen. Honestly, the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference is like makes global news. So like this, this coming, you know, Apple news ending up on FinTech Insider totally makes sense. But I'm going to come to you, Tim, if we can put you, you we have a very excitement announcement for you in a, in a moment. But if we put that aside for a sec, um, what are your thoughts when you saw this story uh, drop? So I think I'd firstly say that we welcome competition in the markets. It's, it's ultimately really good for the consumer. Um, you know, personally, I think the incumbent BNP providers should be really worried. Apple just nails the user experience every time. And I think it's really likely that they can capture significant market share uh, just kind of through their sort of Apple Pay products and, and being associated with it. Um, for me, what's really interesting is this is really the first time that Apple has started building its own balance sheets. It's been a payments business for a long time, but it's it's really kind of stepping properly into financial services at this point. Um, and I'm just really interested to see where they take it. The, the sort of product as it's offered probably isn't um, profit-making. There's, there's sort of no revenue in terms of merchant commissions. And so I presume this is some sort of loss-leading strategy to collect more data on consumers. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see where they take it. Apple known for being data hoarders, um, right? Uh, but it let's. I'm going to come to you, Lena, real quick. Um, Apple, in the announcement, there was no mention of an underwriter or like, a sponsoring bank. How are they doing this? Do you know? Do you have any insight or, or knowledge or even a guess as to like how they're actually like executing um, this buy now pay later feature? As I understood, there's actually um, a subsidiary that they have founded to handle these payments. And my understanding was that there is actually somebody behind that that will sort of shoulder that and actually underwrite because they are themselves obviously not a financial services player. So I think they're getting help. Um, what I think is also really interesting is obviously this is targeted at the U.S. market, and that is one very large market where they are extremely strong. I've seen a fair amount of headlines um, comparing sort of Apple's approach to this to the, to the likes of Klarna, for example, which is obviously a very large European player. And when you look at the European market um, for BNPL, that is a much more fragmented market with very different 
markets with different user preferences, and most importantly, I think very different access to consumer data. And obviously, a really good buy now, pay later option very much depends on the company's ability, and in this case, Apple's ability to adequately predict who's going to be able to pay, because that's ultimately what's going to affect KPIs, such as, for example, their acceptance rates, and also make them in the next step, the product attractive to merchants. And I think that will be a lot harder in in Europe where data availability varies greatly across different markets, and especially if they actually don't have any existing database to tap into. Um, so that was sort of some of my thoughts. And that's what I'm very curious when you're asking me about how they're going to do it. I think this is going to be a very interesting aspect to watch as they look to roll this out across different markets uh, outside of the U.S. Nicole, what does this mean for other buy now, pay later players, especially ones like Klarna and Affirm um, in, in this space? What, what is Apple pressing the BNPL nuke button? What does that mean? Interesting. You describe it as a potential nuke button. Will it be that? Will it not? We'll need to see how it plays out. But yeah, I've, I've got some thoughts Um and I thought it was quite interesting to see Klarna CEO tweeting that plagiarism is the highest form of flattery with the wink emoji definitely included. Um, so, yeah, you can definitely see the defence tactics coming out to play. But, yeah, there's a couple of sides to it. Um, I mean, is by now pay later really the same without the whole shopping ecosystem that sits behind it? Is it the same without the feel-good branding the supportive branding, does Apple really hold that place in consumers' lives? I'm not sure. But then alternatively, with Apple moving away from Goldman being the partner, it really increases their ability to move much more at speed and develop their own risk appetite to this. And as we've talked about, Apple's ability to use data to their advantage is so strong that who knows what propositions they might come up with. So I think it will depend, um, as Tim has said, what they do with it, how they play with it. Is it a loss leader? Is this, um, you know, for introducing even more financial services products? I'm not sure. Um, and then another thought that I had was, you know, if things go wrong with buy now, pay later, and you can't pay or you fall into debt and Apple have to chase you, what happens to your relationship with Apple as a brand? Just now, it's you know fairly positive, and it's in every single hour of our lives. But if if that starts becoming really intrusive and almost a fearful brand, then I'm not sh- you know could that crack the ecosystem? So yeah, it, it's all to play for, and and it'll be interesting to see what they do. I think you're such a fintech person because you're thinking of like, of course, there's the shiny big news about you know this is going to change the world or whatever. But then you're thinking about the 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 bad actors or even like people or, or negative outcomes and unhappy paths, right? So, and, and that's that's really important to think about. But Lena, I'm going to come to you. You talked about open banking earlier. And as we know, earlier this year, um, Apple acquired a British uh, open banking firm, Credit Kudos. So you talked about, we talk about affordability checks and, and how Apple is going to be able to do this. Do you think this acquisition was a ramp up to this, to, to an announcement like this or to a feature like this? Absolutely, it could have been. Um, so open banking, I think, has a huge amount of potential when it comes to real-time credit checks. In most countries today, credit checks are based on checking people's salary from the previous year, because that's usually what sort of authorities will have on record. And what open banking can do, it actually sort of allows you to look at somebody's um, bank account and check sort of what their most recent purchases and ability to pay is. And that is, of course, a very strong predictor 
um, and could very well be something that fuels Apple's capacity sort of to underwrite the BNPL space. Um, I haven't seen any announcements to that effect, but it, it, it would definitely make sense to me. Tim, I'm going to come back to you about Apple's, uh, you know, wading into financial services, right? In 2019, they partnered with Goldman Sachs and MasterCard to launch the Apple Card, a uh, credit card in the U.S. Um, with no annual fees. Early this year, like I said, they acquired uh, Credit Kudos. They seem to be kind of trying to establish themselves as, as a fintech player. What can you say for, um, you know, when we think about product innovation, uh, one thing that, that gets left out a lot of these discussions is distribution and channels for distribution. What do you think this means for distribution at Apple? Like when when Apple Pay and Apple Pay Later is is available on almost every iPhone um, in America, is that is that something that you think is sustainable? Do you think that's that's going to completely disrupt the industry? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point. So Apple does have access to an incredible distribution channel. Their penetration within the UK smartphone market, I think, is in the region of forty percent, and so they have this incredible capability to cross sell. You know, it's incumbent banks and lenders are typically sort of either cross-selling to their customer bases or acquiring customers through um, price comparison sites. And this is just a, a totally new play. So it's going to be interesting to see how they leverage that. Um, I think it's just going to be interesting to see also how they play in what is quite a heavily regulated market, whether they're in the, the UK or the US. And there's a huge amount of scrutiny on financial promotions and, and sort of seeing how Apple navigates through that complexity um, is, is going to be interesting to watch, I think. And, and with, with this news, Tim, like in, in the, with the backdrop of, of you know, in, in the UK specifically around the, the, the cost of living crisis and everyone keeps throwing around the word recession, um, is it the right time for Apple specifically to be to be entering this space? I mean, with inflation soaring, interest rates are, are you know, pu- could could push up operating costs. Um, there's there's talk of e-commerce potentially dwindling. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but, you know, has, this, has the Apple product come out too late? Like, is this the right time? So I think in terms of the market, it's still very early days. When you look at BNPL share of e-commerce transactions, it's still a few percent. And, you know, I think we're still quite early on the consumer adoption curve. So I have no doubt that there's a long way to go for this market and, and you know, they're still coming in at a good time. Um, our view, though, is that, you know, consumers are going to have a tough time, and particularly this winter when energy price caps increase and inflation really begins to bite. And... You know, to the point Sophie made, suddenly they are going to be in a position where, um, you know, they're going to have to consider the impact of their brand of, you know, dialing customers and trying to collect uh, repayments. So I think that's that's a challenge that maybe they're not thinking about. Um, you know, I think Apple have hundreds of billions of cash on their balance sheet, so they can probably weather the credit losses and, and sort of learn about this space without worrying too much um, about sort of... Um, bootstrapping it and and being profitable from the outset. So they're probably better placed than they. Yeah, speaking of companies that are not profitable on the outset, really, let's look at FANG companies, right? The big techs of the world. Uh, Nicole, like, well, what are your thoughts when you when you hear about like big tech, like you know, Apple wading into into fintech and into the buy now pay later space? What what is the impact of that on regulation specifically? Like, are regular? What do you think regulators are thinking right now? Well, I was to your previous question, Guerra, about whether it's the right time to enter the market, and Tim, what you said about you know potential credit losses. I'm just thinking in my head, they don't care about the cost of living crisis and the difficulties that people are in. They don't care. Actually, this is the perfect opportunity for them to leverage when people are in need, and that's the sad the sad place that we find ourselves in. 
So should regulators be putting more pressure on them when they have such a large distribution network and channel and ability to influence customers' behaviours? Absolutely they should. Whether they will or not, I, I'm not sure. We've, we've, it's, it's been you know, such incremental progress when there's been outcry about buy now, pay later in general. Even if you can argue the positive sides of it, I'm, I'm not quite sure I see that leap coming, even though it absolutely should be there. All right. Uh, we could we could talk about Apple forever, but I want to get to some other exciting news. Uh, so this came from UK Tech News, and we also have uh, someone very special on the pod today to talk about it. So Challenger Bank Zopa enters the buy now, pay later market as well. So Challenger Bank Zopa is joining the increasingly popular buy now, pay later space. The BNPL service will be offered on larger purchases of £250 to £30,000. So these are purchases that might typically take customers months or years to save up for. Zopa said it will run checks and affordability tests for all users before offering credit. Uh, and the London-based company added that it will share data with credit rating agencies uh, to give lenders a better idea of people's borrowing habits as well. Zopa said it will release its buy now, pay later service in a staggered approach that closely aligns with the Treasury's ongoing consultation. So initially, Zopa will offer buy now, pay later through B2B partnerships and only offer it to customers uh, once new regulation comes into play. Tim, we're really delighted to have you on the show to discuss this. Um, what made you guys uh, move into the buy now, pay later space? So it's, it's really a, a combination of factors. This is a space that we've been watching for a really long time. So you talked about uh, this backdrop of rising interest rates and inflation and the impact that's going to have on consumers. We actually think there's never been a more important time to uh, sort of launch sustainable lending products, which sort of really are built with consumers in mind. So what we're looking to do is bring a uh, BNPL product to market that really focuses on driving great consumer outcomes, but actually also sustainable for us as a lender and, and sort of has robust unit economics. Um, the second piece was we expect this kind of space in the markets become more regulated over the next year or two. And actually, we've seen previously that uh, the introduction of regulation creates opportunity. And so with the introduction of things like affordability checks, we expect life's going to get a lot harder for incumbents. Um, we saw that in the auto finance markets, which is similar in, in the sense that it's also point of sale, uh, actually, when regulation was introduced, a lot of the incumbent banks actually exited the market um, due to you know, the cost of regulatory change. And then finally, there's, there was a recognition that actually consumer preference is changing and increasingly consumers expect or want a financial services product at the point um, where they need them. They don't want to have to go independently to, you know, Zeta.com or a price comparison site to find it. So we want to be wherever our customers need to be. And we recognise that to do that, we had to kind of get into this market. As you said, we're, we're targeting a slightly different consumer segment to the likes of Klarna. We're going after much larger ticket purchases over longer durations. That, I, you know, I, th with the larger ticket purchases, right? So that's like luxury. Earlier, before we started recording, we were talking about Birkin bags and, and Rolex watches as, as assets. Um, what circumstances would you envision lending £30,000 through this product? Like what, what kinds of use cases have you seen uh, in, in the research? Sure. So 30,000 is definitely the exception rather than the norm. So we would expect our average loan to be more like in the, the single digit thousands. But um, typically we would expect to be financing things like big home improvement projects. Um, you know, these are purchases that can provide great utility to customers and actually create lots of value for them. And so we think it's appropriate to be financing large loans for those purposes. 
uh, we aren't going to be encouraging sort of, you know, uh, really sort of frivolous borrowing to purchase things that you know, people potentially don't need. Let's let's double click on that on that use like you know really focus on users and like you know interest in in, in bettering people's lives. One thing that cropped into my mind when I saw this, uh, especially with regards to the the proximity you guys have to the regulators and 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 this this very intentional release you guys roll out you're, you're doing. I, like first thing that comes to mind for me, who you know when I moved to England, I had a thin file. I was known. I'm still kind of known as a thin file um, uh, bank bank uh, customer. Um, are, have you seen use cases or did you guys ever think of use cases of people using this buy now, pay later product to, um, for, to, to show good borrowing habits? So to, to, you know, be included financially uh, and, and show like because you're, you're reporting to the regulator. Have you seen people try to use this um, for good? Yeah, absolutely. That's sort of one of the big objectives of uh, what we're trying to do here. So there are kind of three kind of customer tenants that we're trying to achieve here. Firstly, we want to make sure that the products are advertised appropriately as credit products, not not uh, to drive consumerism. Um, we want to make sure that uh, when we undertake credit checks and affordability checks, that we do that in a, a responsible manner. And then finally, we want to provide customers with service that act- services that actually um, so they help improve their financial well-being. Um, to give you an example, on our credit card, 50% of customers have actually improved their credit score within a year, which enables them to unlock, um, you know, often kind of lower cost credit in the future. Um, and in terms of the thin files, actually, we've been investing really heavily in open banking. We were the first uh, large credit card provider to actually use um, open banking data uh, to make lending decisions in the absence of your data. And so that's something we're really excited about, it's, um, its potential. We're, we're always looking at other data, whether that's sort of, um, you know, uh, credit data from other geographies to sort of help with different migrant corridors or different underserved segments. Yeah. I think thinking of the customer in a holistic manner, I think from a product perspective, like is is imperative and really like it's great that, that you guys at Zopa and, and we're seeing other fintechs as well diversifying their offerings. Nicole, how important is it, is it for, for fintechs to be flexible when it comes to their services and, and, and their offerings and, and diversifying them for to meet customers where they're at? Yeah, I think I think it's super important to flex what you bring to the customer as long as your core vision remains the same um, and your, the purpose of why you set up your fintech in the first place. But I think Zopa has been, you know, so flexible, evolving as the market has changed and consumer preferences are changing and new technologies have evolved. Um, And I think that's something to, you know, massive kudos to you guys for doing that because, I mean, we were talking today, I was talking with a colleague today and someone had said, if you fail to evolve, you will evolve to fail. And I don't think there's any, another truer word that could be said. That's great. Um, I love that. Uh, Lena, I'm going to come to you. Like, So this story, uh, one thing that also st- jumped out at me was the proximity these guys, like, Tim, I'm talking about you like you're not here, <laughs> but the proximity that Zopa have to regulators and credit agencies, really, like, this really intentional rollout. Um, should all buy now, pay later providers have an open dialogue with credit rating agencies and regulators in, in the same way? I believe so. Yes, no, absolutely. No, I think so. Um, so, and this is sort of a two-way communication, right? Um, so if we look at sort of what Klarna has announced most recently with regards to actually feeding back information on payers um, to credit agencies, to me, that's a very logical step, agent, actually, because if you want to get the full picture of somebody's financial health today, 
quite simply, you will have to factor in buy now, pay later purchases. That wasn't the case five, six, seven years ago because it wasn't as much of a phenomenon, right? Um, but today, people with the rise of online shopping, and there's obviously a very clear number showing sort of how much that has increased, um, this can be a really big part of somebody's financial health. So I think that's a really important way because, of course, obviously, sort of this feeding back into sort of the, the, the credit data will also mean that it will impact future choices those consumers make or maybe should not be making. So I think that's really one important part. And the other, of course, is when we talk about the regulation of the buy now, pay later space, I think much has happened over the last couple of years. Um, and again, I think it's also due to the maturity of the space. So for example, in the early days of buy now, pay later, there was a significant revenue, I believe, coming from sources such as, for example, late fees or maybe even debt collection, right? And then over time, these business models evolved because ultimately the future lies, of course, in offering consumer services that they're willing to pay for rather than they're being forced to pay for. Coming back to Nicole, what you were saying earlier about sort of how will a negative consumer experience with Apple actually impact people's view on that brand? And obviously, I think a lot of the larger buy now, pay later players would not be where they are today if they hadn't managed sort of to sort of make that transition, um, focusing more on revenues that consumers are actually willing to give them rather than being forced to give them. And that's also partly due, I would say, um, due to regulatory changes. When regulators started to understand, okay, now we see a lot of late fees here on the consumer side, how much should a late fee actually be? Um, and there is differing regulations across different European markets. So I think that dialogue has also been important um, when we look at regulatory bodies. I think I think it's also let, let's step back for a second and like look at the fact that, you know, this space has been around for so long. We've seen uh, the dust is finally kind of settling, right? Like we're seeing maturity of the space, like you said, Lena. We're seeing regulators collaborate in a meaningful, thoughtful way. They're, you know, in the UK, for example, as well, the FCA have engaged with Buy Now, Pay Leader uh, in, in a very intentional way. We're seeing businesses like Zopa diversify their product suites to, to include Buy Now, Pay Later. Tim, are we seeing the end of the Wild West era of Buy Now, Pay Later? So I certainly hope so. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that uh, it, it can just be done much better. So we're, we really want to drive more sustainable practices in this industry. Uh, and so, you know, from our perspective, the sooner that this becomes formally regulated and the practices are checked a little bit, the, the better, really. I'm also, of, I'm also of the thinking that, you know, Buy Now, Pay Later is a feature um, not a product. I mean, you can build a product around it, but I, I think it is a feature and it's it's really cool to see companies like like Zopa, um, you know, provide that feature alongside a bunch of other features to, to really provide a holistic uh, financial services experience. Nicole, I'm going to come to you for the final comment. Any any final thoughts about the Buy Now, Pay Later space, the future of Buy Now, Pay Later at all, or even Zopa in general? Um, well, it's a bit of a negative note to end on, I'm afraid, but when you were asking about the end of the Wild Wild West of uh, By Now Police, I was kind of thinking, sadly, I think it will diminish, but it won't disappear, and it will sadly affect the people that it should not affect the most. So those who actually have lower incomes struggle with them, financial health, struggle with budgeting, you know, social... Um, pressures of and, and um, kind of impulse, compulsions to buy things like all well, it just really targets all of these people with vulnerabilities and sadly I think there will be players who and providers who will exist in the market today who prey on that um, and it's a shame because as Tim was saying you know raising the standards of the industry every single fintech out there should be proud of how they serve communities societies and make people's lives better and sadly not all of us share share that heart. So, yes, I think it'll definitely get better. 
um, we're seeing much more of this, but there'll be a small proportion where, yeah, it will be continue to be disappointing. And uh, one last thing, Tim, like it's kind of great to see a bank tackle this, right? Like it's it's great to see that, like in my opinion, the way I think about it is is people actually are now going to see buy now pay later as an actual financial services instrument, like a, like it's lending. Um, I'm going to give you one last one last word on 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 that piece and and what Nicole said earlier. Do you have any response to that? Um, no, I, I agree. I think, as you say, it sort of needs to become part of the mainstream, you know, and increasingly, I think it will just because of changing consumer preferences. And, you know, hopefully as it becomes part of the mainstream and, and regulated banks begin offering these products, then that's only going to drive better outcomes for consumers. Awesome. All right. Uh, we're going to take a quick pause here while you hear from our sponsors. Uh, we'll be back shortly. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back and let's get into our next story. African payments company makes a rare purchase of a U.S. fintech. This came from the Financial Times. MFS Africa, a digital payments company, is to acquire Oklahoma-based Global Technology Partners, GTP, in what is described as a rare case of an African group doing a tech deal in the U.S. The acquisition will allow MFS to issue prepaid cards to clients and makes further evolution of Africa's rapidly growing fintech scene. Hundreds of millions of people in Africa who do not have bank accounts store their money on their mobile phones or in digital mobile wallets. But many international companies, including Netflix and Amazon, do not accept digital payments via mobile money from Africans. So they're they're kind of kept out of a lot of the global digital payments world. So Dario Okuju, founder and chief executive of MFS, said that the tie-up with GTP would help solve this problem. To hear more about this acquisition, we caught up with Dare, uh, the founder and CEO of MFS Africa, at Money 2020 to ask about this partnership and what this means for the African continent in general. My name is Dario Kuju. I'm coming to you live from uh, Money 2020 in Amsterdam. The acquisition of GTP by MFS Africa allows essentially three things. The first is to bring connectivity between mobile money and card rails at scale on the continent. GTP has traditionally been servicing the banking industry with more than 80 pro- live programs across the continent and ability to move seamlessly money between those cards and mobile money is the first thing we're going to focus on. The second one is to be able to accelerate the issuing of digital credentials to number of fintech customers across the continent. Traditionally, MFS Africa has been a partner with the likes of mobile money operators and other fintechs on the continent. And what we're going to do is to make sure we can leverage the combined stack of two companies to accelerate the issuing of digital credentials to those partners. The third one is going to be really about being the one-stop shop for card issuing at scale on the continent 
for brands and digital merchants across the world. This is quite a milestone for Africa fintech in general. On one side, it obviously shows the, the, the industry and the ecosystem has come to age when it comes to M&A and ability to do this, not only across the continent, but also across borders all the way to the US. But closer to home, it also opened a whole new possibility for the gig economy, for e-commerce on the continent, for which card rails are still very important. And they need to connect to the most prevalent form of current account, which is mobile money. That's great. So this is historic, right? This I like as someone who I'm an African who is also reporting on this right now. I'm pretty excited to hear about an African fintech, you know, making this acquisition. Uh, someone joked on Twitter, "Africans taking American jobs." Not not really the case. Um, but uh, you know, this is this is this is quite a landmark deal. Um, and it it, it sounds like. You know, Nicole, in the work that we do at 11FS, we advise clients on who are doing mergers and acquisitions, um, you know, potentially who are investing in seed stages for companies and all that. Um, MFS Africa is an example of a payments company that has built themselves up to be a giant based on a bunch of acquisitions in the continent. This is their first acquisition outside of the continent to serve their customers. Um, and it's it's kind of looks like it's been a pretty good, uh, a, a pretty good, like, strategy for growth. Nicole, do enough fintechs think this way when going into partnerships or making acquisitions? So I'm really impressed by this deal. I think you can see from what they're trying to do that it's got both customer benefit and commercial benefit for the provider itself. You can see how it really, really solves the customer pain point. Um, It solves for the unbanked. It solves for these people being shut out of accessing services that the rest of the world can can, can have access to. Um, And then commercially, you can see how that opens up a huge opportunity for them to be able to insert themselves in a journey that was not previously available. Um, And it's also, you know, they're clearly quite bold with their acquisition approach. And as you say, going out being a bit of a milestone for the African fintech scene, putting themselves on the global map like that, you know, a bit of scrutiny, you know, global eyes on it. So I think that fintechs globally should be looking to MFS Africa as a bit of a pioneer and, you know, some a company that clearly has a vision that they're looking to solve and they're not just stopping at the status quo. They're not just accepting that that's the way things are done here because they've always um, been done here. They are, you know, they're clearly looking to disrupt the status quo by not accepting that, uh, you know, we do this this way because it's the way that things have always been done here. So, yeah, I think it's super impressive and, yeah, big big high five to them. Yeah, Lena, we, we're seeing so many stories come out of the African continent lately. And, you know, this this is definitely like an outlier, like a bigger story. There's lots of startups trying to serve their customers at the last mile. There's mobile money, you know, the, the success of mobile money in, in, in Kenya, for example. As a payments company, are you guys even looking at and considering this growing market? Like, what are your thoughts when you saw the story? Um, I was, you know what, I've been seeing a number of really impressive stories coming out of Africa most recently and also some pretty high valuations, um, which I was, which I'm really, really happy to see, to be honest, because I think that's not really the first thing that you think of um, when you think of finance in Africa or fintech in Africa. Um, and obviously that must allow deals such as this one. So I was also really, really impressed and really happy to see this. Also, I think this deal makes so much sense because it seems like they're unlocking a whole new market and giving companies access to what is a really sort of large population of potential customers further down the road. So I was I was really happy to see it. Generally speaking, I think 
because fintech tends to be quite local, I haven't looked at the space from my own company's point of view. I have looked at some of the African fintechs from an investment point of view in the past. And what I can say is there's some really impressive companies, coincidentally also in the BNPL space, actually, sometimes um, combined with um, in-store financing, POS financing. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. And I think there is a lot of knowledge to be shared from companies that have done similar journeys in Europe um, and could bring that to Africa, even though the breakfast obviously are quite different and there is I think uh, Nicole was mentioning that there is a fair amount of population that is actually unbanked um, so it's it's a really interesting space to watch I think yeah I think one thing that, that I really liked about this like that you just said Lino is about the unlocking right so that's that's partnering with, with Spotify for example and Netflix to unlock that massive population Tim this is something that you guys at Zopa have also done and, and in your role um, do you do you think a lot about about the you know the, the locked potential that fintechs can actually tap into to partner with other businesses. What are your, what are your thoughts when, when you think about th- this, this kind of angle of, of, of business growth? Yeah, I think we're, we're always kind of very conscious to think about whether we should build or, or buy or partner um, to kind of source new capabilities. And at Zenka, we, you know, we, we try to partner as much as we can, particularly when you know, a capability isn't really uh, strategic differentiated for us. So I, I yeah, I think what they've done is really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of super interested in watching sort of what's happening in Africa. It feels like they're almost jumping um, stages of evolution when it comes to sort of fintech and, and doing some really innovative things in, you know, payments, Web3, um, and they're probably going to be leading sort of Europe and the US soon. I think kind of closer to home, I think actually as we see sort of valuations weaken in, in Europe and the UK, it's going to be interesting to see whether actually fintechs do start acquiring other fintechs as, as kind of opportunities arise. I, I don't think that opportunity has existed uh, historically because of where valuations were. Yeah, and I think I like what you said about, you know, like this this leapfrogging, if you will, of, of technology, um, you know, like basically in Africa. Africa is ripe for that, right? So there's the youngest, pop- very young population, fast growing. Um, but we've actually talked, we've spoken to a, a very poster child for leapfrogging, which is mobile money. So for more on the success of mobile money in Africa, go check out our episode 610 of Fintech Insider, where we spoke to Sitoyo Lopokowit, the CEO of M-Pesa, about the company's 15th anniversary. All right, let's move on to the next story. So this is from AltFi, open banking platform Tink strikes payments deal with Revolut. Tink, the European open banking platform, has struck a payments deal with Revolut marking the latest wave of open banking tie-ups. The deal was formally announced on at the Money 2020 conference in Amsterdam by Daniel Kellen, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Tink. The deal is centered around Tink's payment initiation service, the PIS technology, which lets users pay companies directly from their bank account rather than using a debit or credit card through a third party such as Visa or MasterCard. The technology will allow Revolut users to connect the bank account they want to move money from and instantaneously authorize and complete a payment without leaving the Revolut app. In 2022, Visa acquired Tink in a bumper 1.8 billion euro takeover of the Swedish open banking platform. So we caught up with Daniel, the CEO and co-founder of Tink at Money 2020, and asked, why Revolut? I mean, we, we take great pride in uh, powering the pioneers. We do the boring, the plumbing, and we just want to you know, enable innovation and competition and more consumer choice. Um, and to partner with someone like Revolut, who's really someone with a clear vision for what they want to build, not necessarily caring about anyone else, and obviously loved by consumers, is both a bit of testament that we're doing something right, 
but also a way for us to uh, really get open banking uh, going in more geographies and with more consumers. So it's, it's a fantastic partner. So I'm going to come to you, uh, Lena, about this story. What are your thoughts when you when you saw this uh, this open banking hero story? Um, the honest answer is I'm incredibly envious <laughs> of this deal that they struck because my business operates in the same space. But no jokes aside, I think um, it's a very impressive deal, and especially sort of. Um, having followed Ting for quite a while, they're really big business actually in Stockholm, one of the major fintechs. Their history has traditionally not been in the payment space. They've been focusing on open banking, obviously, for a long time, but much more so in, from the data angle. So their PIS offering is a lot more recent. And the fact that they've been able sort of to strike a deal of this size, Revolut is obviously a very large customer. Um, I'm sure it's been a, a long discussion and a long process to get them assigned. I think it's a really impressive deal. From a Revolut point of view, I think it makes a lot of sense. Open banking payments in app uh, generally, I, I think, are a beautiful solution across the number of different markets. And it's getting better and better all the time because in the different markets in Europe, you see essentially um, the usage of open banking apps increasing. So that means that it's a lot easier for a customer, basically, when they make a purchase in-app or if they want to create a transaction, um, such as in this case, in the Revolut app, for example, if they want to uh, switch back and forth between this and their, their own bank's app, that has become so much easier um, recently. So I think from a, both from a user experience point of view and also for both companies, it strikes me as a win-win deal. Uh, speaking of win-win deals, Nicole, you've had some experience in this kind of world of, of partnerships and, and deals in general. Like this, these are two massive names in the industry working together. You know, can you give us just like what do you think was happening behind closed doors? How easy was it to get or hard was it to get deal, a deal like this over the line? Well, it really depends how much the customer, a.k.a. Revolut, needed the service, a.k.a. Tink. And Revolut, I imagine, having spent many and I were staying at open banking business cases in a previous life to live in FS, recognize it commercially. And from a cost perspective, this makes a lot of sense for them. So actually, I imagine that that's the primary driver rather than the customer experience, because I don't think customers have quite cottoned on to the fact that actually being able to send an open banking payment is far easier than typing in your card details every time. And it's almost like once you've done it once, you think that that's the way all payments work now. But anyway, so yes, how easy is it to get it over the line? It depends on the demand. Clearly, the demand was strong. Clearly, there was a, a customer use case for it. Um, I also think it comes down to sort of market timing. And, you know, if you're fundamentally changing the profile of your business, as Revolut could be arguing to do, um, then it happens has to happen at the right time for consumers. But then, you know, also happen at the right time for the market perception of the strategic choice that they've made. So, you know, if it was too early or too late, what impact might that have had on Revolut's valuation or people viewing them in a different light and the decisions that they're making? So that's another aspect. And then in terms of kind of getting it over the line and, and really gelling together, it really depends how ready the businesses are to physically partner together. You know, are both parties getting the right deal out of this? Um, are the people aligned? Is the digital infrastructure aligned? And if it's not, are they willing to work with where they might be different? culturally how does it fit together how ambitious are they are the roadmaps going in somewhat of the same direction I mean you wouldn't get a deal like that over the line unless there was some alignment and some sort of um, progression towards achieving the same thing so yeah I think it's obviously a sweet spot of all of those things and then you have all of the logistics of physically getting the deal done but I think that when you know two partners come together with in harmony to solve problems, whether that be commercially or for customers, then 
you know, there's always a driving ambition to, to get it done and get it done, you know, as quickly as, as feasibly and logistically you can do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, the industry is is kind of shifting, right? So, like, just to give context of where people's minds are or were. So, Starling CEO Anne Bowden famously described open banking as a flop at the age, end of 2021. Um, she said it was too clunky, too costly, uh, and businesses would struggle to make money from it. But we actually are seeing a ton of partnerships in uh, in open banking. So last week, just last week, TrueLayer teamed up with Singapore-based fintech Thunes to streamline and improve their payments experience for customers in the UK and Europe. Yolt and CreditSafe announced a partnership to utilize open banking to better understand the financial health of CreditSafe's customers. You know, we're, we're seeing stories like this crop up all the time. Tim, is the fintech industry waking up to the possibility of open banking as a banker yourself? You're not a bank. I mean, like, sorry, I, well, you're not a banker. You work at a neobank. Sorry, my grandma once described me as a banker to someone, and I was like, no, <laughs> I'm not that. But, Tim, as a banker, as a neobanker, I would say, do you think, um, you know, people are waking up? Is the industry waking up to open banking? So I'm a huge advocate of open banking. So my answer is yes. Um, I think Anne Bowden initially judged the success of open banking based on the volume of current account switching. And you know, in that respect, it didn't really accelerate volumes of current account switching. But over time, we're seeing more and more consumers adopt open banking. The quality of products and services offered to consumers are improving. You know, it's democratizing access to credit. It's making payments experience is much better. So we're, and SOPA, we're hugely um, sort of invested in open banking and think it's it's going to be a huge part of the future of payments, but also the kind of future of underwriting and, and how we deliver products to customers. So. Yeah, I think I agree. And I think personally, I think that open banking is going to unlock so many new business models, use cases. Lena, do, do customers need to understand open banking to actually use open banking? Like, is this something that you think, like in, in your work as well, did you, do your end users know I'm logging into open banking? Like, what what is the sentiment? Yeah? Not at all. No, open banking to me is very much an industry term. Um, it's not something that the average consumer would be familiar with at all. I think basically you, making an open bank payment, open banking payment, um, from a consumer point of view is quite simply using a bank account. I mean, you'll see your bank logo in most markets that have a limited number of banks. That's literally what you'll see in the checkout. Um, and I think you, there's no need for a consumer to understand the concept of open banking um, in order to use the service. Then obviously there's more complex use cases. So for example, if you're allowing an open banking provider or a TPP to enter into your account and to pro- provide a credit score, then there is a need for some more explanation around what is actually happening. But even there, I wouldn't say that open banking is, is a term that would have to be used. So I don't think that we depend on the adoption um, of the word in order to see more widespread usage. I, I agree. And and to quote Simon Taylor, 11 of us is Simon Taylor, when the tech is ready, it disappears. So, you know, when open banking is is now it matured, as matured as it, as it is, it's disappearing. Like, you know, your grandma's not talking about logging into an open banking platform to, to make a payment at, uh, at Harrods or whatever. All right, let's move on to the next story. <laughs> Why did I use Harrods as an example? I've never even been there. <laughs> so this is a segment we like to call stories we didn't have time to cover. So this is a part of the show where we quickly round up some of the stories uh, from the week that we didn't really have a chance to, to talk about in depth, but they do deserve a shout out. So this week, uh, we do actually, it's a special one, we have some a few clips uh, from some of the other big stories announced at Money 2020 in Amsterdam. So Nicole, why don't you get us started? Sure. Thanks, Quero. Um So first up is that JP Morgan backed software startup Kodak at an $825 million 
valuation. So Cora is a software startup that connects small businesses with financial institutions um, and, has previous, and has raised uh, $100 million in an equity funding round led by JPM Chase's growth equity arm. The transaction values uh, Coda at roughly $825 million um, and it's, it's you know, a pretty great result uh, in getting a lot of traction and attention in the market. Um, so an example of Coda's data connectivity in practice is enabling a coffee shop owner to link accounting software with PayPal's point of sale platform. The startup can offer data sharing with third parties such as banks so that ultimately lenders can consider lenders that are considering providing financing have real-time visibility into a business's financial health. Proceeds from this funding round will be used to increase the number of integrations to small business financial applications. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised this is getting a lot of attention. Um, it's got data, lending, small business, all super hot topics. And I think that um, as a kind of um, behind the scenes provider, this one is super important. It will really, really help um, small business owners really satisfy their jobs to be done. And, you know, who knows what they could achieve with better lending opportunities. So, yeah, thumbs up for me on this one. That's great. To find out more about this, we actually reached out to Peter Lord, the CEO of Kodat, also friend of the podcast, uh, to ask what it means to complete a triple figure funding round in the midst of economic issues elsewhere. I'm delighted to share this week that we've raised a $100 million Series C led by JP Morgan Growth Equity Partners alongside Canopy Ventures and Shopify. In addition to continued support from existing investors, Index Ventures and PayPal Ventures. Additionally, we're pleased to share the news for the first time that Plaid has made an investment in Kodak and that took place prior to this round. One of the reasons this is so exciting for us is because of the calibre of the teams we are welcoming as our advisors and partners as part of this funding. These companies really understand both the immense value to their customers of opening up small business data and the technical complexities to make that happen. With their help and support, we have so much more firepower to execute on our mission to make life easier for small businesses. The fundraising environment has changed dramatically in the last few months, and so, in this context, we're even more appreciative to have the industry backing and capital to accelerate our growth. Our investors chose us based on the strength of the business performance and the size of the market opportunity ahead of us. And so now we're excited to get our heads down and execute on that potential. All right. Next up, we've got, this is from Payments. Modular unveils SEPA instant service for real-time European business payments. Embedded payments platform Modular has launched a real-time Euro payment service based on the pan-European SEPA instant platform. The service is available 24-7 and settles funds in 10 seconds, according to a company's press release. The new service will allow customers to roll out embedded real-time Euro payment propositions through the Modular API. This will allow them to send and receive payments immediately under either their own or Modular's regulated status. SEPA's instant real-time capability is expected to supercharge the capability of emerging sectors that will benefit from payment immediacy like crypto, e-commerce, and lending, according to the press release. The new announcement comes on the back of the company's $108 million Series C round in May. We also caught up with Miles Stevenson, founder and chief executive at Modular at Money 2020, 
busy, busy week at Money 2020 to get more information about the SEPA instant service. Hi, Miles Stevenson. I'm the CEO and founder of Modular. Um, we're here at Money 2020 announcing our recent deployment of SEPA Instant, uh, which is the latest addition to our FinOps hub, which we've developed to enable uh, any business to become a payments business. We're focused on embedding payments in software platforms. We're super excited that that comes on the back of our um, Series C fundraising, $108 million uh, led by General Atlantic and, and supported by our existing investors. And that's enabling us to pursue the vision of integrating payments into any software platform um, to, to enable them to drive business efficiency and also launch new products so they can become a payment company um, through our, our functionality and our capability. Let's bring everyone back for the final story of the week. This is our and finally story. And finally, Rapid launches an out-of-this-world competition for software developers to win a trip to the edge of space reported by Fintech Futures. So Rapid, the Fintech-as-a-Service platform, has launched a series of challenges for developers to win tickets to ride to the edge of space in a private capsule launching in 2026. The company launched the competition with a video featuring Star Trek's own William Shatner, who himself recently journeyed to the edge of space. Developers will have the opportunity to compete in a total of 42 challenges. Each challenge solved will reveal a password, unlocking an entry to win tickets to the edge of space aboard the Space Perspective spaceship Neptune. The three individual winners plus one winning hackathon team named the galaxy's greatest fintech developer will board the world's first carbon-neutral spaceship on a six-hour trip. So we asked the 11FS community on social media whether they wanted to journey into space. Any guesses as to as to what the split was, um, Nicole? Um, I, I, I Without think, looking at the I notes think, that, we, <laughs> that we have, I, I think it'd be. I think it'd be Don't pretty high. I think it'd be pretty high. Yeah, like eighty percent of people being like, "Yeah, yeah. take me to space." Yeah, I mean, definitely seventy-five plus. Lena, do you want to solve some bugs and go to space? You know what? I'd love to. Given the chance, that'd be great. I mean, unfortunately, I don't have a tech background, so I don't, I don't see any chance for me to win this one. But uh, if there was any way for me to tag along, I'd love to do that. Tim, if you could uh, close some Jira tickets and uh, do some, uh, some hacking, do you think you'd want to go to space? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I'm just wondering if it's too late to retrain as a developer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, so our community, 56% of people said, yes, I'm a rocket man, take me up there. Um, 44% said, no, I like gravity, thanks. Out of the three of out of the four of us, I think I I'm personally like no, I'm fine. I don't really want to go up there. We should not be up there. Um, <laughs> Tim is like hell yeah, let's do it. Nicole, do you want to get up there? Is that well? I mean, if it's a six-hour trip, I've been going back and forward to Dubai to see my clients on a seven-hour trip. So I think I'd rather uh, use that time to go to space. Thank you. Nice. What about you, Lena? Do you wanna? Would you actually get up there? Yeah. No, given the opportunity, I would absolutely. So they, they, these guys had William Shatner, right, uh, as their celebrity endorsement. Tim, if you were launching a fintech tomorrow that is not Zopa, obviously, uh, would who would be your your celebrity endorsement? Oh, you ping me on the spot. <laughs> I've not thought about this. Maybe one of my heroes, <laughs> just as uh, an excuse to meet them. So, uh, yeah, um, St. Nick Roll. I don't know why. He's a cool guy. I think, I think that'd be good. Oh, nice. He is a cool guy. He is a really cool guy, actually. I've read a lot about him. I mean, uh, like, that not that what like endorsement deals are it's just like founders being like i really want to meet this guy or this person so i'm gonna get them to like william shatner like i'm sure the ceo was like yes i would like to meet william shatner uh lena which which uh 
celebrity endorsement would you would you bring on if you were to release something? You know what? Um, to be honest, it's actually something we have discussed in the business because we've seen other people doing it, and we haven't been able to come up with a single one that we feel would have been sort of a really good representation. Um, so it's I, I I don't know. I really haven't made up my mind. I must say. Very boring answer, unfortunately. But well, the, the queen is getting up there. She's ninety six. I, I feel like she she knows a little bit about payments, right? The <laughs> next time you're in London, have a chat with her. <laughs> See what she Nicole. Says. Who would you, who would you bring on? Well, to those of you who've listened to the podcast before, you know I am a big fan of Snoop Dogg. So I have to say that <laughs> I would choose him time and time again. And you know what? he is a fintech it. nerd, actually. So yeah, that's yeah. I, I think he he would totally do that. All right, we could we could go on and on, guys. This was such a great show. Um, this this wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so 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 much to today's guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Nicole? You can get me on LinkedIn or on my email at nicole.perry at eleven fs dot com. Lena. You'll find my business Bright on brightpayments.com or otherwise you'll find me on LinkedIn where I tend to talk a lot about payments in open banking and anything remotely connected to how people pay online. Awesome. Tim? Yeah, you'll find me on LinkedIn. I also talk about open banking and, and sort of lending. And if you want to learn more about Zopa, um, then go to zopa.com or download our app. And as for me, you can find me at 11fs.com. Also lurking around Twitter uh, at Nokwera, just my tweets are nonsense check them out if you want thank you so much for listening join in the conversation on social media or email podcast at 11 have a lovely week and goodbye